If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of 2 Samuel. We are headed into the home stretch of 2 Samuel. This is the concluding section of this book, chapters 21 through 24. We're going to look at chapter 21 today, and then the next three weeks we will conclude our study in 2 Samuel. And then we will be having our annual foreign missions conference in middle of February, February 18th through the 20th, in which uh, Pastor Ed Hartman will be here with us to preach on Sunday from the book of Acts on our conference theme, Unhindered. And then we will begin a long journey in the Gospel of John. So we'll have to buckle up for that. Uh, I anticipate at least several years in the book of John with several breaks in there. But what a wonderful way to spend time in God's Word. But we have uh, been blessed in the Old Testament uh, for some time now. And we, again, come to this passage with open eyes, open ears, and open hearts. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. For the Word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient, and the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. We'll be looking at 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 14. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, though the people of Israel had sworn to spare them. Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us, and planned to destroy us so that he would have no, we would have no place in all the territory of Israel. Let seven of his sons be given to us. <clears throat> so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mehalothite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished. Together, They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock. 
from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Beth-Shan, where the Philistines had hanged them. On the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought, them, he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan. And they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. O oh Lord, we ask this morning that You would open up Your Word. We ask especially, O oh Lord, that as we look into this text, that You would show us the Lord Jesus Christ. That You would show us His great worth and all that He has done for us. And that we would honor and glorify Him. This we ask. In Christ's precious name, amen. Some passages in the Bible we want to skip past. Sometimes it's because it's a passage that's hard for us to understand. We're not exactly sure what's going on. Sometimes we don't think a certain passage has much to say to us. For example, a long genealogy. We find it hard to get application or, or something for us to think about from such a text. But others, like this one, make us uncomfortable. We want the Bible to be inspirational, uplifting, positive. But the truth is that the Bible has to deal with hard things. We need to be confronted with sin and to see the reality of what salvation cost. <clears throat> That's the picture here in chapter 21. The result of covenant breaking and the cost of putting things right. And while we're uncomfortable as we look at this text, I want you to join with me because I do think that we can see the Lord Jesus, behind the events before us. Well, let's start then by looking at this text, at covenant breaking. That's how this text begins. This is indeed the last section of the book of 2 Samuel, and it forms a kind of appendix to this book, chapters 21 through 24. In fact, Many scholars often treat these chapters as an unnecessary tack-on to this book. That the narrator is simply trying to wrap things up. But instead I want us to see that this chapter and the ones that follow are intentional. There is a purpose in them for us. Now that we've already seen David's sin and the consequences of that sin, this is a wrap-up of what David's kingdom looks like. 
And so this is here to bring certain things to our attention. It's not by chance. And so we see this happens in verse 1 in the days of David. Now, we have to understand that this is not, strictly speaking, chronological. I've told you this is kind of a wrap-up, almost an appendix to this book. So don't have in your mind that this happens the week after the events of chapter 20 close out. No. All we know for sure is that this chapter occurs after the events of 2 Samuel 9. Because Mephibosheth is brought back to David and to his table in that chapter, and here he is mentioned once again. It is possible, if we try to narrow this down, that this occurs after the events of chapter, or excuse me, before the events of chapter 16. You remember in 2 Samuel 16, Shimei, the family member of Saul, from Saul's clan, threw rocks and dirt and mud at David, and he called him a man of blood. And it could very well have been that Shimei had these events in mind. The death of the seven descendants of Saul when he chastised and cursed David. Well, what we do know is not much at first. We're told there is a famine in the days of David. And this is not necessarily unusual. But a lack of rain would be bad in Israel. Israel is a very dry, arid place. And so if rain does not come, then crops don't grow. You can't bring in the harvest. There will be hunger and there will be disaster looming on the horizon. This is something that the Israelites lived with all the time. It would not be unusual for there to be one dry year. But then it turns into a second and we begin to wonder, and yes, perhaps there could be two years of dryness and famine. But what happens when we see three years running? And the text even makes it clear to us. It highlights it. It's not just three years. It's year after year. Now we get the sense that something is wrong. And... Israel and the king would begin to think that there's a problem behind this. That God is speaking to them through this famine. That something is going on. Now, this is difficult for you and for me to see. Because we live in a world that sees no connection between events and God. We think everything has to have a so-called natural cause. An unconnected Reason, But that's not how the Bible presents the world. Not everything that happens in the world or in your life is a direct punishment for sin. We have the book of Job to show us that truth. You may remember that the blind man was healed by our Lord Jesus Christ and the disciples' response was, who's at fault? Who sinned? The man or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. He was born blind from birth that God might be glorified. So there's not always a direct correlation of events and punishment. But we do need to see God behind what's happening in our world. We should see that even in our own lives. We have been and continue to experience a pandemic of COVID. 
And of course there are scientific explanations for the spread of the disease, for the lack of immunity to the disease, for all of the things that are going on. But God is also using that to speak to us. And I don't claim to know every aspect of that, but I will tell you one that I am absolutely convinced of. That God has brought this pandemic to us to show us and teach us the absolute critical importance of gathered public worship. We didn't realize how important worship was until we couldn't. And if you're anything like me, now you long for worship each and every Lord's Day. You don't want to be absent. But, you see, we need to see that critical importance when COVID is behind us, when we don't need to worry about a pandemic, will we be drawn away from worship by sports on Sunday? By wanting to sleep in? By company with us? You see, God is telling us through grand events throughout all of the world something important. And the people of Israel and David would have known their Bibles and they would have wondered whether this famine was God's judgment on them for some offense. Leviticus chapter 26, God tells Israel that if they wander from Him, if they break covenant with Him, He will seal up the heavens and the rain will not come and they will experience famine. And then God repeats that in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And so David wonders what this could be. He thinks and he can't imagine a specific event that could be causing God's judgment. And so he responds in wisdom by going to the Lord in verse 1. He seeks the Lord to find out what he should do. Now we don't know exactly what he did, but it's likely that he went to some prophets in Israel and asked them to go to the Lord and to bring the word of the Lord to him so that he could hear from God. You have to remember that David had but a fraction of the Bible you hold in your hands. But let me ask you this. When events come that are hard and confusing in your life, do you go to the Lord? We don't have the prophets, but we have the entirety of the Word of God. That's where we should start when we're trying to figure out events in our lives and in the world. Well, God answers David, and He tells David about His justice that is coming upon Israel because of the broken covenant. And at once, this word is unlikely and it's hard. David couldn't have expected it. The famine is a judgment because of what Saul has done to the Gibeonites. Now, we're not aware of that. We don't have an account of that. And it becomes clear through this story that David and Israel has forgotten all about this crime. But it's also clear that God has not forgotten. Now, we might ask, why is this so important to God? These events occurred more than 25 years ago. Why is God so concerned that some Gibeonites were killed? Why does God bring it up now? Isn't there a statute of limitations on bad things? Isn't there a point where we can put it behind us and God lets it go? 
Well, it's interesting. The answer is God brings up something that happened 25 years ago because of something else that happened 400 years ago. You may remember the Gibeonites. They came to Joshua and the Israelites. When Joshua and the Israelites came into the promised land that they were led by Moses and Joshua out of Egypt, they came into the land of Canaan and God told Israel that He was going to give them victory and they were to displace the Canaanites, to take over their cities, to wipe them out and their gods out because of their idolatry and their wickedness. And Joshua and his army did that. You remember the famous scene at the city of Jericho where the walls of Jericho came tumbling down and no fortress was safe against this army. No army could be victorious against it. And the Gibeonites were a particular branch of the Canaanites. The text tells us they were Amorites by birth. And they were smart. They knew that they couldn't face Joshua and Israel in battle. They were watching all of these defeats. And so what they did was, they went and found the oldest, rattiest clothing that they could find. You know, the ones with big moth holes in them and fraying edges. And they took their oldest, worst shoes. You know, those kind of shoes that preteen and teen boys take out and play in the mud and scrape up. And they barely look like they're held together. And then they took the most miserable, disgusting, old, moldy bread. And they came to Joshua and they said, Can we live here in the land, will you? Will you make a covenant of peace with us? And Joshua, knowing that he couldn't make a covenant with the people of Canaan, said, Well, where are you from? And they said, Oh, we're from very far away. Look, look, these clothes, brand new when we left. These shoes, they were just made when we started on our journey. And this bread, it was hot out of the oven when we went on our journey. We're from so far away from here. You don't have to worry about us. And Joshua fails to go to the Lord. He fails to ask the Lord for wisdom. He believes what they say. And he enters into a covenant with them. And an ancient covenant, you may remember from the days of Abraham, was made by taking animals and cutting them in half and putting them on either side, and walking between the split animals. And you would make a covenant oath, and you would say, May it be so to me if I break this covenant. May I be cut in half like the animals and destroyed. And a curse will come down upon me if I break this covenant. That's the important context. And then we read that Saul had tried to wipe them out in verse 3. It's, it said that Saul did this for zeal for Israel and Judah. Now, we don't know when Saul would have done this, but it's very likely that this is probably during the period when he went crazy and killed all the priests at Nob. It makes sense that when you're having trouble internally, politicians do this today. When people are critical of you, what you do is you find a scapegoat. And the Gibeonites are an easy target. They're in the land. You don't have to take an army to go fight them. They're not Israelites. They're actually Canaanites. And he would stir up a campaign, wipe out the Canaanites in Israel. 
And no one would have remembered or thought about that covenant made 400 years before. Perhaps Saul even took their land and gave it to his supporters. Something we read about in 1 Samuel 22. Everyone forgot about this but God. They had sworn an oath in God's name, a covenant of peace. And so now when that covenant is broken, Israel has disgraced God. And they have called down upon themselves all the curses of the covenant. And so what we learn then is about the justice of God. The justice of God is unforgetting and it never gives up. It always catches up to the guilty. And you may say, but pastor, I know a man who lies and cheats and steals and he's wealthy and he's famous and he lived his whole life and no one called him to account and at his funeral they, people lavished praise on him and called him a great and wonderful man. Read the end of the book of Revelation. There will not be one person who will escape the judgment of God. God's justice also demands retribution for sin. There must be payment. There must be recompense. There must be justice worked out. God cannot forget about sin. And so this serves as an example to us to think about. We often see God's patience. God was patient here. For 25 years, He gave Israel the opportunity to repent. And instead, they ignored Him and they forgot. They broke covenant. The second thing that we see here is a shocking atonement. David has found out what the root cause of the famine is. It's Saul's breaking of the covenant with the Gibeonites and killing them. So what does he do now? He needs to address the problem, but <clears throat> this isn't very easy. You know, in our day, sometimes people think they understand why God is doing certain things with the weather. Most famously, I remember when Hurricane Katrina came in, there were a bunch of people who decided that the reason for Katrina was God was attacking that wicked city of New Orleans. The problem was they didn't have God's word. And I think they forgot how wicked Las Vegas is. And Los Angeles is. And New York City is. And Chicago is. And Houston is. But you see here, David has special revelation. He knows exactly why the famine is coming. And so he goes to the Gibeonites. He says, God has told me what's wrong here. I need your help. Now, something that's interesting here is, it's been 25 years, and the Gibeonites have not complained. They're quiet. They don't have an annual remembrance festival of the Saul slaughter. And this, I think, is very odd to our modern ears because we are used to complaining about every perceived injustice all the time. Our culture is filled and built on blaming everything on how we have been wronged. We constantly bring that up. But the Gibeonites, they're quiet. They don't complain. They probably think, 
The more we complain, the worse it'll get for us. But David sees the issue here. There is a need for atonement. And so he goes to the Gibeonites. It's not just that something bad has happened. It's not just that there's been an injustice. No, Israel has broken a solemn covenant made in the name of the Lord. They have dragged the Lord's name through the mud. It means that what they have done is also sinned against God. Unless we think that it was just Saul who had sinned. Saul alone could not have killed all these Gibeonites. Israel had to follow him. They had to be involved in this. It was a national disgrace. And the Gibeonites' response is unexpected. They don't want compensation. Do you see this in verse 4? It's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul and his house. We don't want money. Now again, this is very odd to our ears because to our ears, every modern problem is solved by what? Money. If someone's done something wrong to me, pay me. And sometimes we view it and we wonder, how could money possibly compensate? You hear stories, for example, of a man who is unjustly convicted of a crime. Because the witnesses lie and the prosecutors tamper the evidence and they spend 20 years in prison and they're finally freed and they think they cut the guy a check and everything will be made even. No! He's lost 20 years of his life. That doesn't make things even. And that's what the Gibeonites say. You can't fix this with a payoff. This isn't a lawsuit that will help us out. No. And there's a reason why they don't want money. It's because the Gibeonites know the law of God better than the people of God. In Numbers chapter 35, verse 31, God tells the people of Israel that they are not to accept money in exchange for a murder. That that doesn't wipe the slate clean. That death can only be resolved by death. Life for life, blood for blood. This is the way God's law had always been, back to the days of Noah in Genesis chapter 9. And so the Gibeonites ask for justice, for retribution, for atonement. David says, what can we do to atone? And they tell him. The Gibeonites' blood had polluted the land and there was only one solution and that was to shed the blood of the one who had shed blood. The covenant had been violated. The curse had come down. It needed to be carried out. They see this because look at verse 6. Let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord. This will be atonement before the Lord. And the Lord will see it and He will relent. They're asking for an atonement. Yet, when we hear this, we are not very comfortable. Seven men need to die for this? But stop for a moment and think how restrained the Gibeonites are. Surely Saul had killed more than seven Gibeonites. You know, they could have demanded the entire family of Saul. 
They could have demanded thousands of lives in exchange for the thousands who'd been killed. Why do they ask for seven? I think it's probably because seven is the number in the Bible of completeness. They are thinking representatively. That's important. Do not forget that. The seven men represent the nation of Israel and the clan of Saul. The house of Saul will die in his hometown, even as the Gibeonites were killed in their hometown. This would satisfy the wrath of God and make atonement. And David says yes in verse 6. Now when we hear that, we are horrified. We immediately think of everything that's wrong with this. Why should the innocent sons pay for the crime of their fathers? Why doesn't God let bygones be bygones? Isn't there a statute of limitation on this crime? Couldn't Another solution had been found. Couldn't they bring in a third party negotiator to negotiate between David and the Gibeonites to find some better solution? But before we judge what's happening, we need to look. This was not a matter of an individual criminal case. It was a national matter, a national disgrace. Israel had broken its covenant with Gibeon, sworn by her leaders in the name of the Lord. They had called down curses upon themselves. This was something they knew, something they had said. But as the men are dragged off, killed, and hung, the Hebrew word here probably means that they were killed and then placed on a large pole for all to see. We find that repulsive, don't we? Ralph Davis suggests, and I agree with him, that that's the main point here. We are to find this repulsive. We're to see that atonement for covenant breaking is horrible. It's gruesome. It's repulsive. Atonement is not just a theological concept that we discuss or debate in Sunday school. It is something we cannot look at from a distance. No, Jesus was not an abstract idea. He was God who became man, who lived a perfect life, and then who went to the cross for sinners, for you and for me. Calvary is no less horrible and repulsive than Gibeah. That is what it took to atone for you breaking the covenant of God. You violated God's law. You have sinned against a perfect, loving, holy God. You, like Saul's whole family, deserve death. But another stands in your place. Jesus, 
atones for your sin. He wipes out your guilt. Do you see the lengths that God goes to? We don't often even think about the scene at the cross until perhaps Good Friday or Easter weekend. But do you think about the blood that was shed, the pain that was inflicted, the shame that was heaped upon Jesus? It was gruesome and repulsive and messy. But Jesus didn't shrink back because He would accomplish atonement. Our reaction should not be to judge God. It should be to say, there but for the grace of God I go. We all deserve to be hung as a curse. But Jesus came to satisfy the wrath of God for sin and to take guilt away. Look to the one who died on your behalf and be saved. But this chapter is not all blood and gore. There's a third thing that we see, and that is examples of covenant keeping. We've seen covenant breaking, and now we see covenant keeping. That is, those who keep their promises, who fulfill their oaths. And we have one expected example and one unexpected example. The expected example is David in verse 7. This is almost an aside in the middle of this story. And we can be confused because in verse 7 it tells us the king spared Mephibosheth. And then afterwards, in verse 8, we're told that Mephibosheth is handed over. Well, there's an easy solution to this. There are two Mephibosheths. You all have seen that in your families. We have families where there's Big Joe and there's Little Joe. Right? Where there's multiple men in the family that have the same name. But there are seven descendants of Saul to be handed over. But there's a problem. One of them is Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. And David has sworn a covenant oath to Jonathan before the Lord, back in 1 Samuel 20, that he would preserve Jonathan's descendants. David had kept that oath in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, showing kindness and love to Mephibosheth, bringing him to his home to eat at his table. So what does David do now? Does David risk political criticism by sparing Mephibosheth? You know, somewhere in the court, there's a man, a pollster, who came to David and said, David, word is that 53% of Israel thinks it would be a bad thing for you to show favor to Mephibosheth. This is going to hurt you at the polls. Or maybe David would respond the way that Saul responded, by not thinking about others, by not thinking about breaking his oath. No, David is placed here in our text in distinction to Saul. Saul was a covenant breaker and David is a covenant keeper. David had committed himself to Mephibosheth's safety, and he keeps his word. And this is just another reminder of the Lord as a covenant keeper. God keeps 
His promises. It was His promise to redeem for Himself a people that sent Jesus to the cross. It was His promise to never leave you nor forsake you that made Jesus' work final and effective. R.C. Sproul puts it wonderfully. When God writes our names in the Lamb's book of life, He doesn't do it with an eraser handy. He does it for eternity. Then the unexpected example here in our text is Rizpah, the concubine of Saul. As we come to her, we ask the question, could this story get any more sad? Could it make us hate sin and the consequences of sin any more than we already do? And the answer is yes. Rizpah is a concubine of Saul. Her sons are not in line to the throne. They're not royal princes. And she is helpless to save her sons. There's only so much she can do, but she does what she can. So she goes into her closet and gets out her sackcloth. And she goes out to Gibeah and she lays it out on the rock. Because she will not let her sons be defiled by the birds and the wild animals. Day after day, she looks on them. Week after week. How long can she possibly do this? Well, the text doesn't tell us exactly, but many commentators believe that when we see in verse 10 that she went from the beginning of harvest until rain fell, that that describes a period of time from April to October. Now, can you imagine that? How deep is a mother's love that she goes out to protect the rotting corpses of her sons month after month after month? Why did she do this? Because she couldn't abandon her children. She was a covenantally faithful mother who would do all she could, as little as it was, to get them any mercy she could. And she gets that mercy. We see that in verses 11 and 12. David hears about her story and he puts an end to her misery. In the midst of this sorrow and pain, this woman shows us unshakable love. Does this make your heart hurt? It should. Does this prompt you to love those whom the Lord has given to you? It should. The faithfulness of families is one of the greatest blessings God gives us. But there is one final covenant keeper that we are meant to see, and that is God Himself. We see it first in the conclusion of our story in verse 14. That God responded to the plea for the land. That He lifted the curse. God was faithful to His covenant by calling for justice. But now that atonement has been made, He is faithful to relent. But most importantly, we see God's covenant keeping not here, but in the New Testament. No amount of money can wash away sin. 
No works of righteousness can make God forget His holiness or our guilt. But the Lord sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to atone for sin. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one that you can look to and say, He died for me. If you put your trust in Jesus, you are free from guilt because Jesus has paid it all. Jesus has made a full atonement. And God keeps that covenant promise with His Son to redeem all that Jesus has paid for. Don't waste a moment. Don't wonder if God will forget the life you've lived. Run to Jesus now and find hope and salvation. Let's pray.